friends. Welcome to the Ridgedale Students Podcast. Ridgedale Student Ministry is a family of middle and high school students at Ridgedale Baptist Church following the way of Jesus together in Chattanooga, Tennessee. If you'd like more information on all things RSM, you can find us at ridgedalebaptist.org students or on our social media pages. Thanks for stopping by and we hope you're encouraged by today's teaching. We are entering into our last sermon series of 2023. This is it. Uh, two more messages, and then a party, and then we're going to be in 2024. And the way that I wanted to close out this semester, this year really, is to give a little bit of vision casting. Um, I did this at the end of last semester too, and I wanted this to just be a continuation of this thing that, that really has kind of stuck with me for a long time now, as long as I've been trying to kind of figure out what, what do I want a ministry that I'm trying to, to mold and to craft and to form into this image of what I have in my brain into, into reality, what do I want it to look like? As I was thinking about this, uh, it made me think of this past year, Samson had his first year of playing organized sports. And so he played t-ball. Um, it was super underwhelming, if I'm being honest. Samson, if you're listening to this, I'm really sorry. But one of the things that I loved about it was the very first practice that Samson had. He uh, was like trying really hard. His team only had like five people on it, which if you know how baseball works, is like six people too few to have on a baseball team. And so uh, he was like, he was out there with these five other kids and they're doing the best they can. And at the end of the practice, we didn't know that this was coming but the coach would award one of the players with this medal. Um, And it was like best effort of the day, I guess. And so all of them are kind of standing, they're lined up, and they're getting ready to finish up the practice. And the coach pulls out this medal. And he's like, all right, I want to give this to the hardest working person that was at practice today. Samson Frakes, come up here. And like, as a dad, to see the reaction that Samson had as he went up and got this participation trophy was like the greatest experience of my life. It was him like working towards something and then getting acknowledged for that thing. And then everybody kind of watching and clapping. Just the look on his face was priceless. We're talking in this series about honor and blessing. And this is why I wanted to talk about this. Because all of us, if we're in the room right now and breathing, have this intrinsic desire to be honored. All of us have this want, this desire within us to be honored in some way. When I say honored, like we don't use honored in our, in our typical vocabulary. What I mean by that is we all at some level want to be known and seen and loved. And in the moments, if you've experienced before, when you are known and seen and loved, it's an immense blessing. It's something that you don't forget about. It's something that you kind of carry with you in every space after that. It's a core memory moment. <laughs> But we all intrinsically have this desire to be honored. The sad reality is that we live in a culture that does not do a good job of this. Most of the world, most of the culture, most of the people that you go to school with, if you've walked through the halls of pretty much any middle or high school, unless you go to like a private Christian school, I don't know, uh, you probably hear a ton of conversations where it revolves not around honor and blessing and building up the other person, but it revolves around the devaluing and tearing down of that person, the destroying of the image of God within the other. 
So most of our world's tendency is not towards honor, but it's towards destruction. And we all have this ache, this desire within us that oftentimes when it's not met and it's not fulfilled, creates this deep woundedness. All of us know what it feels like to not be seen and to not be known and to not be loved. And it creates this pathway within our hearts and this pathway within our minds that tells us that's the true story of your life. But because somebody didn't see you, because somebody didn't know you, because someone didn't love you in that moment means that that is actually how your story and how your value is defined. So hear my heart and my vision for why I want to do a series like this. It's because I want to see this place become a community where people who have experienced that kind of beating down, that kind of brokenness, that kind of hurt, where they can come and experience something more like going to a doctor's visit or to a hospital, where they receive this like this care and this attention, this affection, this deep knowing and seeing and loving that they've longed for that doesn't just like soothe something within their body, that doesn't soothe a physical hurt, but that soothes something deeply within their soul. Like when I picture the end of my time at Ridgedale, when I picture my last Wednesday or my last Sunday here, what I desire to look out and see is a group of people who have been deeply formed into a community who look at every single person who comes to the door and say, I want to know you and see you and love you. I want to honor you. So that's where we're going. Tonight, what I want to do is I want us to look at this in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. But before we go to Romans 12, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the fact that you, before we did anything, knew us and saw us and loved us. You've loved us in such a way that we should be formed into a people of love. Whenever we see somebody that we're not just seeing a person, we're seeing another image bearer who is worthy of our time and our attention and our affection. So God, we pray, help us by your Spirit to be formed into those kinds of people. Help this community to be formed into a community that resembles and mirrors that kind of love and attention and affection that honors the people that are here and the people that have not yet come here. So we pray, do this to your glory and to our good. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want us to check out first, what is a house of honor? This, this whole idea of a, being a house of honor and a house of blessing. What is a house of honor built on? You think about building a house, you have to build it with the right stuff, yeah? You can't just build a house with like marshmallow puff. That doesn't work, um, unless you're building a gingerbread house, in which case it could work. We have to build a house out of the right things. And so if you want to build a house of honor, what do you build a house of honor out of? Let's look at Romans 12. Romans 12, verses 9 and 10 says this, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Romans 1 through 11, let's just give you a quick flyover of the book of Romans. Romans 1 through 11 is just packed with theology. It's one of the like, richest, most expansive just presentations, basically, of, of theology that you're going to find anywhere in Scripture. Romans 1 to Romans 11, just Paul lays out as plainly as he can the doctrine of what it, believe, or what it is to believe and to trust in God. Just everything is laid bare. But then he gets to Romans 12. And he flips the script a little bit. And what he does in Romans 12 that he hasn't done in Romans 11, 1 through 11, is he teaches us what this is actually supposed to do within our hearts. 
The focus of our retreat this year was Romans 12, 1 and 2. And it's the, the vertical relationship. What is this supposed to do in our relationship with God? It's supposed to lead us into transformation. But when we go past the beginning section of Romans 12, what we find is what this is supposed to do in our horizontal relationships. What is this supposed to do when we live and do life? When we go to work, when we go to school, and we run errands with the people that we're surrounded with on a daily basis? What is this supposed to create within us? And this is what we hear first and foremost. That we are to let our love be genuine. We're to hold fast to what is good. We're to abhor what is evil. We're to, to just be repulsed by what is evil. We should love one another with brotherly affection that we should outdo one another in showing honor. The first thing I think that we see that a house of honor will be built out of, that the house will be built on love. Check this out. This is really cool. Uh, in the Greek language, there are four words that can be used to describe love. Um, there's eros, which is the love that your mom and dad have for each other. And then there's storge and philia, uh, or phileo, and agape, one that we're probably all familiar with. It's this like expansive, like God-centered love that's unconditional. Um, when we think of those four words that are used for love, how many of them do you think are used in this two-verse passage alone? Wrong. Because if Eros was here, that would get really weird. Three of the four, and the one that's not there definitely shouldn't be there. We should not be, we should not be Eros on each other. Um, three of the four words that are used for love are present here in this very short two-verse passage. It takes up two lines of text, in, in my Bible at least. If you have like one of those giant print Bibles, it may take up more. But three of the four ways that we describe love are used in this one two-verse section alone. I think that's really interesting that, that we point out. One of the things that John Mark Comer put, uh, pointed out in his newest book that I got the opportunity to read a little bit early was this, the most important thing that happens between God and the human soul is to love and to be loved. Read that again. It's on the screen behind me. The most important thing that happens between God and the human soul is to love and to be loved. Here's how that works. Here's the relationship here. We experience God. We come into His presence. We commune with Him. We have a relationship with Him. And the, the main thing that you're going to experience in that is the divine love of God, the agape that's described here in the first love that's mentioned in this passage. You experience this deep, abiding love of God, this thing that just transcends any love that we could ever imagine or conceive of here on earth. But then what happens as you kind of like sit in the presence of this love is that love kind of begins to seep into every facet of your being. It's like, it's like radiation. If you sit in radiation too long, you're, you're going to wind up glowing green or yellow or something. When we sit in the presence of God's love, day in and day out, what happens to us is that love begins to seep into our very souls. And then as we leave the space that we're in, we go out into the other spaces that we occupy. We go into schools, or we go into work, or we go into our sports practices, or we go into our band rehearsal or our choir concert. We begin to just move with this presence of love because we've sat in the presence of love itself. Here's the thing. Uh, if you would say that you're a follower of Jesus in the room right now, raise your hand. Just really quick. This doesn't have to be weird. Okay. Most of us in the room, yeah, I don't see any hands down. Ladarian didn't raise his hand, so that's a little concerning. But um, If you're a follower of Jesus in the room right now, here's a great litmus test to see how effective your following Jesus has been in the formation of your life. It's to ask yourself this question. Am I becoming more loving? Am I becoming more loving? 
the answer is no, maybe time to revisit some of the ways that you're practicing being a follower of Jesus. Maybe time to ask yourself a question, what does it actually even mean to follow Jesus? But if we can look at the, the content of our lives and see over point A of coming into relationship with Jesus and point B, the present moment, that we have drastically expanded into a person of love, that is the point of following Jesus. It's to form us into people of love. And so the first step to becoming a house of honor is to become people who are being loved into a people of love. The first step in the process is for us to become a people being loved into a people of love. It's for the work of sitting in the presence of Jesus, letting his love wash over us, and then allowing that to seep into the very parts of our soul to then go out into the world and express that same love to other people. This is so easy to say, though. Like, I'm standing up here right now, and my words may be a little, like, strange and chopped up, and and you may not think that I'm communicating this greatly. It's so easy to say, though. It's so incredibly easy for us to say we should become a people of love, or we should experience God's love so that we can go out and love other people. In practice, is it this easy? Absolutely not. It's incredibly hard. And so how do we generate this kind of love? What's the stuff that the love has to be built on? It can't just be built on the fact that I've experienced God's love because at some point we're going to forget, oh, God loved me, so I should love another person. What do we build this on? And then the second thing we see is that the house will be built on the image of God. The house must be built on the image of God. Or more importantly, that the love that we express to other people as we seek to honor them has to be built on the image of God. We did a series on this earlier in the year. We looked at these three different movements of what it means for us to be made into the image of God. So it's easy to love lovable people, right? All of us could probably, I I thought about asking this question in small groups. Who's the easiest person in your life to love? And most of us would say, it's my best friend, or it's my mom, or it's my sibling, if you have really good relationships with your siblings. Some of us would say something along those lines. But are all of us always our most lovable selves? Are the people that we find easiest to love, are they always the easiest person to love? No, absolutely not. So what happens then, we have to lean on in order to fuel our love, is something outside of just the lovability of the person we have in front of us. It can't just be based on the merit of that person earning our love and earning our affection. It has to be built on something outside of that. I would say it has to be built on God's image that all of us bear in some way, shape, or form. Look with me at Genesis 1, 26-28a. Uh, We've looked at this passage over and over and over again this semester. But it says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. Do you know that you've never met a person who's unworthy of honor? You've never. None of us have ever encountered a person who is unworthy of honor. And the reason I can say that confidently is because none of us have ever met a person who is not bearing the image of God currently. All of us, in some way, shape, or form, have borne the image of God, and therefore all of us are worthy of honor. Even in all our sin and all our brokenness and all the destructive tendencies that come with our humanity, Every single man and woman carries God's image and is then worthy of honor. 
Elizabeth Elliot says it this way, a Christian sees all men as made in the image of God. All are sinners too, which means that the image is marred, but it is a divine image nonetheless capable of redemption. That's the, that's the key there. It's a divine image nonetheless capable of redemption and therefore to be held in honor. So what Elizabeth Elliot is trying to communicate here is that because all of us bear this image and because all images of God are capable of this redemption, all images then have to be held in this kind of honor. Now obviously that's going to be contingent on a lot of factors. What I'm not saying is to go out and spiritually bypass all the feelings that you have about somebody who's wronged you. Many of us, and we've talked about this before through series, many of us have legitimate, deep, painful wounds and hurts that have come to us because of people bringing things into our lives that we did not ask for, that you did not deserve. What this isn't saying is that you are to spiritually bypass and just say, you know what, I'm just going to forget about it because you're made in God's image. That's not how this works. What it is saying is that all of us should, at some level, have a desire to see the redemption of the image of God in another person and to honor that person in that way. Maybe not in saying, I endorse everything you do, but in saying, man, you've done me some real legitimate wrong. And I'm going to acknowledge that, and I'm going to trust that if that never gets redeemed, God promises me that He's going to get vengeance. And that's cool with me. But in the meantime, what I desire to see happen is I desire to see the image redeemed and restored within that person. To become a house of honor, we have to become a people of love whose love is rooted in image, not merit. We don't just love people because they've earned our love. We don't just earn, or we don't just love people because they've come into a relationship with us and they've been here for two or three weeks now. And so we've figured out, yeah, you're worthy of my time and my attention and my affection. We're meant to come into this space and have a love and an honor for people that is rooted in their imageness and not in their merit. But what will we do as a house of honor? What does a house of honor do? Uh, there is a crazy news story that I was reading about earlier this week. I saw kind of a, a headline pop up in my timeline on Instagram. It's of this man who lived in this tiny little like 4,500 person town in New Hampshire and basically lived his entire life. He drove a, a, a lawnmower everywhere he went um, for like years and years of his life would just drive this lawnmower around town that was his mode of transportation he would go and he would fix people's houses and he would do all this stuff for the most part he would go back to this trailer park that he helped run and he would live in this really ramshackle looking trailer and then he died a couple weeks ago and when he died the people of that town came to find out that he had left the town 3.8 million dollars to be used in all of the areas of like city governance that would contribute to human flourishing in healthcare and education and recreation and stuff like that. Crazy stuff. Like you would never expect that this person who lived as though they had nothing would leave everyone else after they had passed all of the wealth that they had accumulated over their life. What does a house of honor do? I think we get a great picture of this in Matthew 22. Matthew 22, a lawyer comes to Jesus and he wants to know what the greatest commandment of them all is. And Jesus gives this perfect answer that I think encapsulates what it means for us to become a house of honor. Look with me at Matthew 22, 36-40. It says, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. 
This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Something to know, when it says the law and the prophets, that means the entire Old Testament. Everything in the Old Testament hinges in Jesus' mind on this, these two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Two things I think a house of honor has to do. These are non-negotiables in my mind. A house of honor will have to be radically apprenticed to Jesus. A house of honor has to be radically apprenticed to Jesus. One thing you may know is that our willpower at some point runs out in the day. When you wake up in the morning, you probably have your peak amount of willpower. And you can say to yourself, you know what, I'm going to, like, I'm going to take the world by storm today. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on social media. I'm going to eat good. I'm not going to drink five cups of coffee. It's more me. I'm going, to, like, I'm going to do as much productive stuff as I possibly can today. And by lunchtime, you just want to take a nap. Our willpower is finite. All of us have only a certain amount of willpower that we can exert throughout our day. And so if our willpower isn't enough to form us into the kind of people that we may want to be or the kind of productiveness that we want to have, then we have to think to ourselves, there must be something outside of us that's going to empower and create and form what we desire to be formed in us that we can't form ourselves. Jesus' response to this lawyer shows us that before we attempt to love or honor radically, we will need to embody a way of life that is outside of our natural way of life. Did any of us like enter into the world? Any of us like walk, walk into the delivery room saying, you know what, I really want to just love Jesus with my entire life? Sarah Kate, maybe. Some of us, some of us may have had this experience, but for the most part, all of us enter into this world with this bent away from the pathway of God and into the pathway of our own self-gratification. We all at some level just want to do the thing that we most want to do. What happens then, or what has to happen then, is that Jesus has to be the one that forms us into a house of honor as we love His way more than we love our way. You don't become a house of honor by following the way that feels most right to you. You become a house of honor as you yield up the control of your life away from your idea of what life should look like into the pathway that Jesus says life should look like. None of us are going to white-knuckle our way to the finish line. None of us are going to wake up every morning and be able to willpower our way to being a person of radical love and generosity. This has to be a work that comes as we radically apprentice ourselves to the way of Jesus. What does it actually mean that you're following Jesus? Like seriously, I'm I'm just going to pause for a second in the middle of the message. I want us to ask ourselves the question, what does it actually mean that I'm following Jesus? It's the word that we love to throw around all the time. I'm following Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. Where are you following him to? Is he like going to 7-Eleven? He's going to pick up Flaming Hot Cheetos there, and then he's going to go to like his friend's house, and you're just following him kind of the gas station and then to the friend's house. What does it mean that we follow Jesus? If you said yes earlier when I asked the question, if you would identify yourself as a follower of Jesus, do you say yes at some point in your spiritual life? You're listening to a message, you're at a retreat, 
you're sitting with your parents doing family discipleship, and at some point it just kind of clicked for you, and you said yes, and you walked down this aisle on a Sunday morning, you talked to your pastor, maybe for a brief period of time, maybe over a prolonged period of time. Then you got dunked in front of everybody, and everyone clapped and cheered, and then you just kind of went to church and read your Bible some, and you prayed every once in a while, but you didn't feel a deep sense of transformation within your soul. Is that what it means for us to follow Jesus? Or is following Jesus more like us setting out time to be with Him intentionally in order to look at the life of Jesus, to look at the teachings of Jesus, to look at the way that other people interpreted what Jesus did and said and the way that He chose to live His life, and us in doing that and being with Him then become like Him after a certain period of time? We've invested so much relational equity into just wanting to be present with Jesus that eventually He just kind of begins to seep out of the pores of our life. We catch it one day, and we're just acting more and more like Jesus it's because we've just spent more and more and more time with Jesus. And then eventually what we see ourselves doing is we see ourselves doing the things that Jesus intentionally did. We're with Him in order to become like Him, in order to do what Jesus did. Is this how we define what it means to follow Jesus. If you're ever going to be a person who inhabits a community that can be identified as a house of honor, that is going to take a radically different approach to us apprenticing under the life of Jesus and not under the way that our life is meant to look in our own eyes. See, following Jesus as a decision, following Jesus as something where we said yes in the middle of a sermon, we walked the aisle and we got dunked and then things minimally changed but not maximally changed. Following Jesus as a decision is simple and easy, but apprenticing with Jesus is something that may radically transform the way that your world looks. When we begin to truly become a disciple of Jesus, that is when things radically begin to look different. second thing I think we see is that a house of honor will love as they wish to be loved. I feel like I've shared this story before. When I was a kid, uh, my family would go visit my grandparents, uh, my grandmother, my grandfather was dead. We'd go visit my grandparents up in Middle Tennessee. And uh, every Sunday that we were there, we'd always leave on Sunday, but we'd leave after lunch. We'd go up there on Sunday, and uh, every time my parents would insist that we go to my grandmother's church. And I hated my grandmother's church. It was terrible. It was the worst. Um, I say that now. I don't know. They could be better. But at that time, they were the worst. They were legitimately the worst. So when I got up into student ministry, I had a great student ministry that we were a part of. I really loved the people that were there. I enjoyed the community. We were really close, a tight-knit group of people, kind of like the group of people that we have in this room. But what I would encounter there is I would go into this room, and there'd be about 20 or 30 people, kind of similar to what I experienced at my own church. And I would walk into the room, I would sit in a chair, and nobody would speak to me. Nobody would say, hey. I would sit next to the student pastor, and he wouldn't say anything. I would go about the entire hour-long process of being in there, feeling as uncomfortable as humanly possible, and then I would leave, and I would say, I never want to go back in there again. And eventually, after about five times of torturing me, my parents finally conceded, and I was like, okay, you don't have to do it again. I hated it. I hated that experience. So when I say that a house of honor will love as they wish to be loved, I want to ask a few questions. What does the loneliest person in the room most want? They want to be invited into community. They want to be accepted and welcomed and appreciated for being the person that they are. What does the most hurting person in the room want? They want comfort. 
They want to know that what they're feeling in that moment is not what they'll feel forever. They want to know that they're seen and known and loved by the people who are surrounding them, even if they don't know all of the details of the story that's happening in their lives. What does the most rejoicing person in the room want? They want to celebrate with people. They want to be able to share the news that they're so overjoyed with and have all of the other people in that space rejoice with them. To be as happy and excited about the news that they've received as they are. See, as we become a house of honor that's radically apprenticed to Jesus, what will inevitably happen is we'll begin to long to offer people the thing we most deeply would desire were we in their position. And it takes us communicating. It takes some emotional intelligence. It takes us being able to look at the person who just came into the room and see, you're not doing okay, and I don't just want to let you sit in that. I want to go to you. It takes coming into the room and seeing the person who can obviously, who's obviously excited about something and saying, share with me your news because I want to celebrate with you. So we become a place that is radically formed by love because we've apprenticed under the way of Jesus. What eventually inevitably has to happen is that we become a place where people enter in, we can look to them and say, I want to celebrate or I want to sit, I want to mourn with you in this. It has to be the way that it happens. This is what we see in the rest of Romans 12. Another way that Jesus put this is we begin to love our neighbor as ourselves. It's crazy to me as I was looking at this story from New Hampshire, the way that this guy, Jeffrey Holt was his name, whether he lived his entire life just looking to the needs of other people, sacrificing comforts and necessities that others of us may have said, man, I could not live without this. I couldn't live without a car. Couldn't live without a good house. Couldn't live without a good bed to sleep on every night. This guy, this person, sacrifices all of these things in order to see the people that are around him loved and cared for and appreciated just for the people that they were. In this tiny, like, 4,500-person town in the middle of nowhere in New Hampshire. And that as he lives his entire life in that type of posture, he looks to the very end of his life and he says, what do I leave behind in the process? It's that the blessing does not stop with my life being extinguished. The blessing continues to move forward as I seek the good, the benefit of other people around me, even as I've departed and gone off to wherever it is, didn't say if he was a Christian or not. See, all of us, I'll say this again, all of us have an intrinsic desire to be honored for who we are, to be seen and to be known and to be loved. We either spend our lives trying to leverage other people around us to fulfill this need, this desire in our life so that we can feel the gratification that we long for, or we begin to look outwardly from ourselves. We begin to say, I want to seek to enrich the lives of other people around me because it's not all about me getting what I want. It's about me looking to other people in love and saying, who can I see? Who can I know? Who can I love? I said it at the beginning of this. This is not like foreshadowing to anything. I saw Plum give me a weird look. I'm not leaving anytime soon. But when I I think, like as I was thinking about this series, when I was thinking about like what, what do I want this place to be like at the end of my time when I hand this off to somebody else? Because never it's just going to happen. It's the way of the world. It's the way life works. I pass this off to somebody else. What do I want them to inherit? What I desire for them more than anything else in the entire world to inherit is a people, a group, who it is so 
easy to stand before and to lead and to guide and to direct because they have radically been shaped into the image of Jesus and are constantly looking outward saying, who is the person in the room that I can most see and most know and most love? Who can I love as my neighbor, as myself? Let's pray.